Chapter 4, Part 5 of Pioneer Work in Opening the Medical Profession to Women by Elizabeth Blackwell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4, Part 5 Study in Europe, 1849-1851 August The lectures have now commenced. From seven to eight, Madame Cherrier gives her lesson every morning. I occupy a chair beside her in consideration of my foreignness, she being anxious that I should understand thoroughly. I wish I could describe that lesson to you. It is the most curious spurring up of pupils I ever saw, and really it makes some of them gallop admirably, though many tumble down in the effort. Three pupils are called down every morning, seated on a long bench in front of Madame Charrier's table, and undergo an hour's examination on what they have heard from the teachers. If they answer promptly and well, her satisfaction is extreme, her face grows beautiful, and her bien, très bien, really does me good. It is so hearty. But if an unlucky pupil hesitate, if she speak too low, if intelligence or attention be wanting, then breaks forth the most admirable scolding I have ever listened to. Alternately satirical and furious, she becomes perfectly on fire, rises upon her chair, claps her hands, looks up to heaven, and the next moment, if a good answer has redeemed the fault, all is forgotten, her satisfaction is as great as her anger. There is not the slightest wickedness about her. She puts her whole soul into her lesson and does not realize how very difficult it is for ignorant girls to study a science. At first, I was a little shocked at this stormy instruction, but really it seems almost necessary now and produces wonderful results. If the girls only keep their temper under it and do not cry, it comes right at last. But a tear is an unpardonable offense and considered an insult and a total misunderstanding. Madame Cherrier is a woman of great experience and always speaks to the point, and her lessons are often very useful. From nine till ten we listen to M. Paul Dubois. I like his lectures exceedingly. A little, bald, gray-haired man, with a clear, gentle voice and a very benevolent face, he thoroughly understands his subject and expresses himself with precision and completeness. At a little after twelve our dinner-bell rings, and right glad I always am to hear it. The large round tables are speedily encircled, all stand up, and a grace is said with such rapidity that to this day I can make out no words but sans usage, and the sign of the cross made with wonderful dexterity on the forehead and breast. 
at the conclusion of the meal, another prayer rocket is sent up, amidst laughing and bustle, and all crowd out of the hall, with their loaves of bread under their arms, and all manner of odd little pots full of eatables in their hands. From one till two, another lesson in the amphitheater, which fortunately is a pleasant room, from the second aide sage femme, a lesson useful on the whole, but sometimes a little wearisome. From two to three is the hour for receiving visitors, but if I am not expecting a visit, and if I have sat up the preceding night, I take a bath, for there are six baths prepared every day at that hour for the Ileva. The same communism exists in the baths as in everything else. They are side by side, in a double row, down the middle of the room, and the withered genius of the bathroom stands observing every moment and taking an incomprehensible patois the whole time. I try to imagine it is only the bubbling of water that I hear. I shut my eyes, lie quietly for half an hour, and fancy that I am deliciously reposing on the heaving waters of some soft summer lake. And I spring up, take a cold dash to the horror of my companions, and hurry off as fast as possible, really the better for the divine element. Were I a good Catholic, I should find my time filled with visits to the chapel, morning and evening prayers, vespers, and the daily baptisms are regular services, with numerous extras on saints' days, etc. But most happily I am Protestant, and again and again I have blessed heaven for the fact. The great, fat, red-faced priest occasionally leaves the retirement of his clerical dwelling and strolls in the wood, or makes a visit to the infirmary. He always gives me long stares of excessive curiosity when I pass him, but I have taken a great dislike to his sensual-looking worship, and will not give him the slightest opportunity to make my acquaintance. After dinner, when fine, I generally go into our wood, and seating myself under my favorite tree, I write till it grows dark or I stroll up and down the broad alleys, sending my thoughts far off into the past or the future. It is very pleasant in our wood. Outside the walls are large gardens and public walks, so that the air is very fresh, and the beauty of the Parisian summer climate is extreme. Sometimes my friendly aide joins me, for she cannot bear to see me alone. It seems to the French a sign of deplorable melancholy. She walks with me, chatting gaily and bearing my clumsy French with great patience, for, as I said, she has taken a fancy to me, and I have to welcome with a good grace the pinches, shakes, and similar tokens of French affection." Fortunately, however, it shows itself in more satisfactory ways also, 
and I owe many an opportunity for interesting observation to her kindness. The girls look picturesque in the wood by the sunset light. Sometimes a group is seated on the grass round its chief, eagerly taking in the instruction that may aid it in the next day's examination. Others are singing or playing, but I think I have never seen one engaged by herself in meditation or work. Their character is eminently social, communicative. Mr. Doherty remarked wisely that vanity, in its widest sense, is their ruling spirit, which makes it impossible for them to understand the English, where pride rules. There is one young girl I like to talk with. I have never seen anything more graceful, lively, and finished than the little pictures of life which she throws off with perfect ease. Every motion of her pretty little head, every gesture and intonation is perfect, and occasionally I am really startled by a profound view of life that she just glances at and then is off again. I would give much to be able to note down some of her narrations, but when I try to turn them into another language, their exquisite spirit seems to vanish. You must not be surprised if my letter contains an immense number of perplexed parentheses and has a tendency to return always to the same subject. If you could only hear what hideous sounds salute mine ear, you would not wonder. The girls are singing hymns to the Virgin in an adjoining room, and really, if the Virgin be a lady of as much taste as beauty, according to the representations of Raphael, she must be considerably annoyed by the zeal without knowledge displayed by her admirers. Our second aide sage-femme is a very pious young Catholic, of really a sweet disposition. A week or two ago, on the commencement of the month of Mary, she assembled the girls together, reminded them of the season, and proposed to meet frequently in the evening and sing canticles in honor of the lady, adding that undoubtedly the object of their attention would be gratified by this demonstration and would not be unmindful of those who offered the homage. The proposition was received with enthusiasm and since that unlucky day, Mademoiselle Boissonette and her followers have exercised their lungs in season and out of season to the horror of all my nerves, and I fear to the serious displeasure of the Virgin. They have numerous little books of canticles. I looked over the index the other day. Who so pure as she... The brightness of her presence, Mary, pray for us, and all such titles filled the pages. The tunes have a striking resemblance to American camp-meeting hymns. There is one which was certainly the original of Oh, Let Us Be Joyful. I often think, if H were only here, how he would join in honoring the Virgin." 
I must give you a few more sketches of my present life. Imagine, then, that you have retired early to bed, after a night spent in hard work, and the day in that nervous mystification that follows loss of rest. You have taken a refreshing bath and laid yourself down, encircled by dear memories that fan you to sleep with their gentle dreams. You have just entered that beautiful dreamland when you are suddenly startled by a scream, a burst of laughter, and then the vision of one white-robed form darting past in the twilight, pursued by a similar form, mysterious to your veiled senses. The chase continues over beds and boxes while shouts of laughter, followed by a shower of small articles, proceed from the other beds. Then a loud smack is heard, whose nature is easily divined by those who are at all familiar with juvenile offenders, a spring from the bed and a rush by the injured party follow. But still you resolutely shut your eyes and will yourself asleep, in the fond hope that nature is really too tired to keep awake, when a sudden rolling sound, followed by a violent shock, at once convinces you of the vanity of your efforts, and you resign yourself to wakefulness, for favorite amusement has commenced. They are promenading the bedsteads. You must know that our bedsteads are of iron, and placed on rollers so movable that a slight impulsion will speed them a considerable distance." Often in stepping into bed, the slight movement has caused the mercurial article to describe a sudden semicircle. This property of these usually sober pieces of furniture is taken advantage of by the girls, who are now in a frolic and exercising in the most ingenious way, to the unspeakable annoyance of a quiet individual and impulsion is given to one end of a long row of beds, which is quickly communicated to the whole row, or a simultaneous shock is given to the two extremities and their force brought to bear on the unfortunate center. But the favorite freak is to place a bedstead at the end of the room and drive it with great violence down the center. The rolling noise over the brick floor is tremendous and accompanied by a regular babble of laughter, shouting, and jokes of every description. Some get on top of their beds, which consist of three thick mattresses, and jump up and down like mad things. Others get up a wild dance in one corner of the room, which grows continually faster and noisier, and the strife of tongues is truly astonishing. Their jokes are really amusing occasionally. The scientific terms that they hear daily play a conspicuous part. The frolic ends as suddenly as it began, when, fairly full of fun, they suddenly jump into bed, say good night, and in five minutes are all sound asleep. 
The first night I was thus rudely awakened, I was much inclined to be angry. But I philosophized a little and came to the conclusion that it was my voluntary action to be there and that youthful spirits must have free play. I pitied the poor children in their undeveloped life and the restrictions they suffer here too much to be disturbed by their little outburst, and the next morning they begged me to excuse them because they were so young. My time is very fully occupied. My former leisure moments are now employed in writing compositions and taking observations. These last I willingly consent to. They will be records to me of French practice. They consist of a little history of the patient and a daily account of her condition and treatment. But as they are in French, I am somewhat longer in noting them down than I should be if I could employ my own noble language. I have made two observations of surgical cases that have been very much approved of. I was quite amused with one of them. I was directed to note the case down under the direction of my chief in that department. As usual, I did promptly and cheerfully what was required. I wrote all she dictated, and then I made a private memorandum for my own satisfaction. This latter was seen by the superior, and immediately the chief was directed to copy it. She did it willingly, for she is a good little being, and has a profound respect for the stranger. The other day two of our chiefs begged me to give them a private lesson on the circulation of the blood, which I willingly complied with. We seated ourselves in the wood, and I explained to them what they did not know. They were very grateful, and have come to me several times since to beg me to continue my lesson. Indeed, the girls here have a sweet nature in many respects. There are little jealousies and excitements among themselves, but they take the right relationship to me. They think me singularly grave and self-sufficing, but they show me continually the utmost respect, and are always glad to do me any little service. I frequently enter the Salle des Accouchements, when the other divisions are engaged there, to see what is going on, and I always meet a pleasant welcome. One evening I phrenologized them, to their unbounded delight. For some time after I could never enter the room without being surrounded by a small mob eagerly demanding an examination. Everything delights them. They are perfect children in their full, unthinking enjoyment of the present. A little English lesson is a never-failing source of merriment, and I am continually saluted with some oddly pronounced English word, followed by a burst of merriment. We have girls from all parts of France— some are remarkable for their stupidity, which is generally explained by the province from which they arrive. Madame Charrier's morning lesson is an ordeal through which all have to pass, 
and seated by her every morning, I have a fine opportunity for studying the various departments of France. When some singularly obtuse intellect has exhausted all the patience and all the impatience of the teacher, she folds her hands and asks in a subdued voice, Mademoiselle, from what department do you come? And on receiving the answer adds, Ah, then it is all accounted for. The case is a hopeless one, which announcement greatly delights the rest of the class who belong to the more enlightened departments. We have one Ilava who goes by the name of La Normande. She is one of my pictures. A fresh, healthy complexion, browned by the sun and the sea air of her beautiful home, regular features, a stout, vigorous frame that has never known a touch of sickness. She walks about with a step that feels the ground. In her white quilled cap and handkerchief pinned over her bosom, she looks with her clear blue eyes right into your face and has a frank, loyal manner that marks her honest, independent nature. On Sunday she dresses in the short, full petticoat, the silk-laced jacket, and the lace cap, with its towering pyramidal crown and circular ray-like border, that I think I have already described to you. She sometimes visits our dotois and forms the center of a group, whom she entertains with her constantly overflowing life, sometimes singing, in a deep contralto voice, her peasant hymns to the Virgin, simple pathetic melodies chanted under the lindens when the day's labors are finished, or dancing vigorously the figures more gay than graceful of her country, while she sings some lively air. I admire her vigorous life. I like to see her in the infirmary. She tends the sick with such an honest awkwardness, such a kind heart, and lifts them like babies in her strong arms that I see the green fields and smell the sweet country air as I watch her. Then I have a little Parisian that I hang up beside her, as plump as a partridge, with merry black eyes, glossy hair always arranged a la mode, and full of little coquettish ways. Her temper is like a lucifer match. The slightest friction fires it. The smile and the tear are equally ready, though the sunshine generally prevails. She has spent several years in business in Paris, in cigar stores and similar employments, where she has had much to do with gentlemen and she repeats to me the compliments they paid her, the offers they made, and her own witty, contemptuous replies with the utmost naivete. Poor child, she has been thrown on her own simple instincts for protection, for her mother was soon jealous of the attractions of her daughter, and removed her to a distance. But the real innocence of her heart and a true attachment to a young ship's surgeon seemed to have supplied the place of her natural protectors. 
but true to her Parisian blood, she has coquetted from first to last. And she never talks to me now, but I find it playing in every dimple. Think of it. She was given me as my chief of theory. Now she asks me in the sweetest manner if I will come sometimes to her lessons and explain to the girls what she does not understand. Poor child, I willingly oblige her. But I must not weary you with my portrait gallery. My walls are covered with curious figures. Let me sketch for you our vaccinations, which take place every Tuesday at one o'clock. The numbers of our babies are distributed beforehand amongst the Ilava who are to perform the operations. Thus, 25 Saint-Marie to one, 32 Saint-Marte to another, and so on. The Ilava seek their babies and bring them into the hall of the nurses, a large upper room, full already of women and babies. A space is cleared by one of the windows, chairs placed. In the center sits M. Blot, the director of the operation. I occupy a chair beside him. Mademoiselle, who superintends another division, stands beside and then baby after baby is subjected to the awkward maneuvers of the Ilava, to their utmost dissatisfaction. The babies are very ugly in their coarse hospital swaddling clothes. I never saw the little beings so enveloped before. They are just like mummies, but they perform a terrible concert altogether with the voices of the Ilava to help them. I sit a quiet spectator of the operation, occasionally addressing a question to M. Blot as he touches knife after knife on the arm of the infant before him, which question seems rather to embarrass the handsome interne, for he colors or passes his hand through his hair and looks intently at the baby in a very un-Frenchman-like manner. I think he must be very young, or very much in awe of me, for he never ventures to give me a direct look, and seems so troubled when I address him that I very rarely disturb his life in that way. I think I have given you enough of my external hospital life to enable you to picture me somewhat in my surroundings. Do you want to know how the spirit feels in its curious home? then know, dear friends, that it is strong and hopeful, that it has moments of weariness, of intense yearning for its true related life, but that it lives ever in the great presence of the Eternal and feels the angels always near. The difficult breaking into the practical work of the obstetrician is noted in the journal of those days and also the pleasant comradeship which gradually sprang up with the very intelligent young physician who served as interne at that time. This companionship was a great relief to my imprisonment in La Maternité. End of chapter 4, part 5